Well, good morning. My name is Adam Knuckles. If I haven't met you, I serve here as the associate pastor for student students, and it's an honor to preach God's word this morning. Our text is Matthew 16. If you want to find Matthew 16, we're going to see in this passage what it is to get Jesus right. That'll be a part of our time looking at what it is to get Jesus right, and then in the same passage, look at what it is to get Jesus wrong. So to get our bearings a little bit with Matthew 16, Jesus, he's nearing the end of his Galilean ministry. He's performed many miracles, he's fed the thousands, healed thousands, he's doing his miracles, and it's towards the end of that ministry that he and his disciples come to Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi was a place located about 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, and it was a center for pagan worship. Um, There, many people worshipped the pagan god Baal. Many people worshipped the Greek pagan god Pan in this location. So this is a place, a center of evil and dark forms of worship. So many people there are deceived and they're refusing to acknowledge or worship the one true God, and they're, they're definitely getting Jesus wrong here in Caesarea Philippi. So it's in this setting that Jesus asks his guys, who are the people, they've, they've been around, they've been traveling through uh, the countryside there, encountering a lot of different people, and he's saying, who, who do the people say that I am? And they say, many people say, you're the great prophet who was written about, that we've been waiting on, written about in the book of Deuteronomy, for example, um, that Malachi, the prophet, spoke on and recorded that there would be a great prophet to come. Many people say that. And Jesus turned to them, or in response, he says, but who do you, who do you say that I am? Again, these guys, his, his close friends that had been eyewitnesses to his public ministry, that have had an inside look and, and been present for his, his teaching about the kingdom of God. So he asks, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, he's going to take on the role of spokesperson for the group, apparently. And he says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the anointed one, our long-awaited hope, the unique son of God, um, the God who is alive, unlike the pagan gods there in Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus responds to Peter based on that profession of, of right, getting Jesus right. He says, blessed are you. Blessed are you. You have a natural father named Jonah, but your heavenly father has revealed that to you. And that is a blessing. And he says, Peter, you getting me right, identifying me as the Messiah, and then all people throughout the generations that get me right, that's going to be my church. They will be my church. The, the word church is used in this passage. It's one of only three times in the Gospels that the word uh, church is used. He said, I'm going to establish my church based on people who identify me rightly. And the church is over going, to come, oh, going to overcome evil powers and overcome even death itself. And this preaching and proclaiming the truth about who I am, who Jesus is, that is going to be um, proclaimed and going to determine who gets granted access to the kingdom of God. They have to get Jesus right. 
is what Jesus is saying. And then I want to spend the majority of our time when we get to verse 21. So that had just happened. And then he said, it says in verse 21, read with me. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, its integrity, its clarity, its power, the truth of your word. I just pray, Lord, that we would see and understand you rightly and follow you as Lord for the rest of our days. So have that truth be revealed and um, encouraged, reinforced for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title of the message, Jesus, I'll say Jesus is Lord. So first of all, just defining what could that mean, that Jesus is Lord. Well, Lord takes on the meaning of master, ruler, someone who has the power and authority over one's life. Lord, Jesus is Lord. So the church, the history of the church from this moment and forward to uh, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the church that he talked about here is established based on people who get Jesus right. And so we see the church grow and grow through the century. And then we come to a point in time where a large part of the world under the leadership or the influence of the Roman Catholic Church, they started to get Jesus wrong, completely wrong. So that's when we come to the 16th century, and, and maybe you're familiar with the Protestant Reformation, one of the heroes of, of our faith, Martin Luther, is credited for um, bringing about the Protestant Reformation. But there was another who influenced about 100 years before Martin Luther, who influenced Martin Luther, and this was a man by the name of John Huss. Now, John Huss is going to be a priest. That was all the clergy at the time, and he's assigned to the Bethlehem Church in Prague, and he's going to be a passionate preacher, and he's going to preach these uh, eloquent, passionate, orthodox sermons against um, the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. So he's going to not be, they're not going to be a big fan of him talking about the leadership in the Roman Catholic Church. Not a fan of John Huss, but this was a man who evidently read the Bible and got Jesus right and said, no matter the cost, I'm going to preach truth. I'm going to live out truth. I'm going to speak to uh, the reality that Jesus is Lord. So he has this strong conviction and he brings into, uh, from the, the pulpit, preaching against, for example, the practice of indulgences, where the Catholic Church would um, sell or, or get money from people to uh, decrease their penalty for sin, in some cases maybe even grant them reward into heaven based on how much money they would give the church. John Huss preaches against that. He uh, talks about, preaches about the desperate need for the church to reform primarily in belief and practice that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ alone is the head of the church and not the Pope. 
So this is going to be a marked man based on him preaching truth and living out truth. He's preaching passionately upon church reform, preaching in the, the people's language in Czech so they could understand him, not preaching in Latin. This was uh, unique. So he's excommunicated. He's kicked out of the church for that. And then he goes to the Constance, and in Constance, a council had formed in 1414. So he goes to meet with them, thinking that's going to be a theological discussion. He's wanting to show them Christ is the head of the church. And they present him a list of 30 teachings and say, you must recant of these. He refuses to. And so they hand him over on July 6th, 1415 to the secular authorities, condemn him as a heretic, and he's burned alive. So John Huss knew Jesus and got Jesus right and followed him as Lord. In 1520, Martin Luther is going to be influenced. He reads De Ecclesia, the, the writings of, of John Huss about church reform, and Luther calls himself a Hussite because he believes in the belief and teaching about the church and Christ is the head of the church. So we see... This is an example. We're going to see the example in our text of getting Jesus right and then also getting Jesus wrong. And uh, church history is littered um, in a sense with these examples. But here's one strong example. John Huss, he gets Jesus right as the only head of the church and Lord of his life. Um, Jesus leads his life even if it costs him his earthly life. And it did. So we've also just been uh, going through, just finished First Peter. Pastor Jen's been preaching through uh, Peter's first letter, letter. And he has much to say in 1 Peter about the suffering and the hardship that will be and it has been endured by the church. But that's encountered only if, only if we follow Jesus as Lord, get Jesus right, only if Christ is the head of the church. So our question as we look to getting Jesus right or getting Jesus wrong is, does my life, does my life reflect that Jesus has the position of Lord always, only? Are my priorities, my decision-making, are they shaped by him? That's the question. So when we come to um, Matthew's gospel record, in fact, the gospel according to Matthew, it never circulated in the church without that title. He is the author. This was a man who he identified himself as a tax collector who is called to follow Jesus. So he is eyewitness to so much of Jesus's ministry. He's writing with a firsthand account, accurate truth about who Jesus is, what Jesus said, and what Jesus did. Now, the purpose of his writing yet was specific. Origen, the third century um, Christian scholar, he says, Matthew wrote for the purpose of those who came to faith from Judaism. Another scholar kind of puts the purpose of Matthew's gospel as he was wanting to show the Hebrew scriptures have all along pointed to Jesus as Messiah. The Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. Also that Jesus brings forgiveness and new life is the true understanding of Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. That's the purpose of Matthew's gospel record. And then also another purpose is how Jesus is forming his church of both Gentile and Jewish followers that are going to continue his mission of establishing God's kingdom. So Matthew's purpose for his original audience and then for us 
for us as contemporary readers, hearers, is to understand Jesus rightly, to believe in Jesus as Lord. Is Jesus your Lord? We must follow Jesus as Lord of all, Lord of our lives. Does my life reflect that? Priorities, decision-making shaped by him. So looking back, Matthew 16, when Peter gets it right, verse 15, Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So for us, maybe where you sit now, you would say, yes, Christian, little Christ. Yes, Jesus is Lord. Yes, I sit here saved and believing, repented and believed. If that's your heart, there's, you can trace it back. Where? Where did you find out about Jesus? Who told you about Jesus? When did you first read about Jesus? There has to be a starting point to that. And maybe, maybe you can remember, maybe the time and place, but regardless who we have to think of, what has informed us? Who has informed us about Jesus's true identity? What is that source? Is it a book, a thought? Is there, there a person there? And then just thinking of even presently how we're continually believing in Jesus, wanting to follow him as Lord, who is informing us about Jesus? And is that person, is that influence in lockstep with the Bible? For us, is our relationship and our belief about Jesus constantly fueled by the truth that is revealed about him only in the Holy Scriptures? I think about just if you met a friend of mine from childhood or a friend of mine from college, and for whatever reason you're wanting to ask them to give an accurate description of who I am. Well, if it was somebody in college, they may say, well, I know maybe three things about Adam. He hates studying, he hates doing the dishes, and he loves cereal. And that would probably be a pretty accurate description today. But, but you wouldn't get the, the accurate description of who I am, but if you ask my wife. If you ask Lacey, who I've been married to and lived with for 17 years, you would get an accurate description of who I am today by asking someone who knows me. So if we, in the same way, are letting someone influence us, teach us, inform us about who Jesus is, do they have a real relationship with Jesus? Do they know? Is it a, an event or something that, yeah, in the past, you know, I was, I was with Jesus, but then presently there's, there's, there's no evidence that they're following. There's no evidence of faithful obedience presently. Could that person or that be the source for us? Have they been informed by, about who he is by him, by his word? So in the same way, we want to be great examples Yes, we want to model for people, Christian, being a little Christ. We want people to be able to look at us, hear from us, know us, and know Christ. Definitely. But we, if we're going to do that, we have to have the fuel. We have to be informed by the scriptures about who our king is, who we're following, who is leading our life. And then, so we want people to see that, be attracted to the Jesus in us that's being informed by his word. And then the same way, we want to turn them to the source as well. 
that there would be some way in our relationships with people that are apart from Christ to say, take up and read. You'll never mind the depths of who Jesus is. And this is how Jesus did it as well. This is how he wanted people to get him rightly, to get him right. Luke 4, verse 16. Luke 4, verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, again, written, recorded 800 years or so before the incarnation of Christ, The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He wants them to get who he is right by seeing the fulfillment of the scriptures, fulfillment of the prophecy that he uh, is, that he rightly and only fulfills. In another case, one of his disciples, John, has a gospel account as well. Um, It's not one of the synoptic gospels. Matthew, along with Mark and Luke, gives us kind of a similar account, a synopsis. John stands alone as a, a little bit different in purpose and in the events that he recorded. But he records one in John 5, verse 46, where he's confronting the Jewish religious leaders of the day, those that are opposed to him. And Jesus says to them, for if you believed Moses... You would believe me, for he wrote of me. So Moses, the author of the first five books of the Old Testament. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus says, you've got to get me right. and You've got to get me completely right by understanding it's all about me. So I I, I hope our students know, I try to tell like our our youth, I tell my kids and, and I tell myself that I can never know too much Bible. I'll tell you, we can never know too much Bible. So familiar Old Testament stories that maybe at this point in our walk with Christ, maybe we've heard a thousand times, read a thousand times. But if I can't explain or understand or articulate on any level how that Old Testament even account points to and reveals the grace of Christ, a grace of God that culminates in Jesus Christ, well, I need to read again. I need to study again. We'll never mind the depths in God's word of who he is, but we must constantly take in. We must constantly take up and read and know and get Jesus right. For if we don't, we can easily get him wrong. Back Matthew 16, verse 21, Jesus points out, explains to his disciples, it's going to be necessary to submit to the Father's will um, for him to leave Galilee, to go to Jerusalem, setting that path straight to Jerusalem, straight to where the most fierce opposition is, and that he's going to suffer. He's going to suffer many things at the hands of the Sanhedrin. He'll be killed, and he'll rise again on the third day. And Peter's reaction. 
to that. Peter's response, he takes him aside and he strongly disapproves. He denounces what Jesus has just said. And he says, oh no, Lord, never, Lord, this will not happen to you. So thinking about Peter got the right answer to who Jesus is, but he gets the wrong answer about what the Messiah has come to do. So Jesus' identity is wed with his purpose. If you get one wrong, you can't get one right without the other. You get one wrong, you get it all wrong. One scholar puts it like this, that Peter's strong will, but yet his warm heart produces arrogance in him. So I want to give Peter kind of the benefit of the doubt to think about this scenario where here's my friend, Here's the, my rabbi, here's my teacher, and he's saying he's going to go away and die. You know, no, I don't want that to happen. So I think you, maybe we could give him the benefit of the doubt and see there's, there's a warm-heartedness there, but nonetheless, it produces in him arrogance where he confesses rightly Jesus as Messiah, and then he speaks as though he knows God's will better than the Messiah. The effect of that warm-hearted, but the effect of that arrogance and then Jesus's remarkable, amazing, loving response to his friend. Again, maybe well-intentioned, but his response, go behind me, Satan. You must get out of my way. You're a stumbling block for me. You're not thinking about the concerns of God, but your concerns. What a remarkable, profound response from Jesus. So thinking about, again, this interaction, should, should Peter have understood? Should Peter have understood what the Messiah was sent to do? Should Peter have understood at this point that the Messiah would die, suffer, die, and rise again? I, th I think we could say maybe. Maybe he should have got it. Um, Jesus had already taught them about the bridegroom, the parable of the bridegroom, that the bridegroom would be taken away. Um, he had taught them, he will teach them again about following him is going to mean taking up your cross. You must die to yourself to follow him as Lord. He had taught them about the sign of Jonah, that it would be the son of man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Mark, his gospel record uh, records that when they returned, who Peter was with him, they returned at the from the transfiguration all, coming down the mountain. And Jesus says, don't tell anyone about the transfiguration until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So Peter, regardless of what he understood, evidently he thought of Jesus' suffering prediction as, as non-literal. Non-literal at best. Like it's not going to happen. He doesn't understand. And he gets Jesus wrong in this instance. So then we see Jesus go on to describe Peter's problem. How he got it wrong. For one case, he says, you're not thinking of the things of God. You're concerned with the things of man. So what is Jesus describing there? What could that, that mean? What well, Jesus, he's taught, he knows the potential. I think we could categorize it as the potential of Peter's heart. The potential of what it means to maybe get Jesus right in one way, but then totally miss it, get him wrong in another way. He taught the parable of the seed and the sower. Matthew 13, other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up. 
since they had no depth of soil. He's talking about the heart that receives the teaching, right teaching about Jesus. Uh, the heart, the person that's confronted with or exposed to the true gospel, the truth of who Jesus is. But he says it immediately sprang up, but there was no depth of the soil. So when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Now this is an interesting parable because this is one where Jesus explains it. So he goes on in verse 20, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Messiah's come. You know, we already know that James and John, other disciples, I think they, they had their mom ask Jesus, hey, who, who can have the position of power in your kingdom? I mean, these guys were evidently thinking Messiah's come, so earthly concerns are going to be taken care of. We are going to prosper and be powerful. This is going to be great. That, that was a pattern of the thought. Receive it with joy. The immediate news of Messiah is here, yet he has no root in himself. But he endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises, when the Messiah says, I'm going to Jerusalem and I will suffer and die. When persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Jesus' loving warning and loving rebuke of Peter, he knows there's the potential of this heart in man. I know it. Furthermore, Jesus recognizes the, the diabolical source of this temptation. See, Satan had already tempted him. Satan had already tempted Jesus in the wilderness with kingship without suffering. Matthew 4, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all this, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus knows Peter's maybe warm hearted, but getting Jesus wrong where it comes from is Satan. Go behind me, Satan. You're tempting me with kingship without suffering. And that's not what I came to do. That will accomplish nothing. So do we set our minds for us? How would we set our minds on the things of man instead of setting our minds on the things of God, putting our glory over and above God's glory? One minute we're saying, Jesus, you're the Christ. And then the next minute we're saying, what you want, Jesus, is not what I want. I'll call the shots. How does that happen? Maybe a way to describe this and Jesus being Lord, but then also getting Jesus wrong, thinking of a, a, a total eclipse. I've never seen one in person, but apparently it's pretty amazing. So we have our sun 400 times or so larger than our moon, but then it's 400 times further away from the earth. So apparently about every 400 years on a certain spot on the planet, that the moon will pass in front of the path of the sun's light and completely block it out. Total eclipse. Block all the light out for a moment or two. When the shadow, and you're, if you're standing in that spot, you're standing in the shadow of the moon. I think of setting our minds on the things of man, what that would be, and it's from Satan, is when anything eclipses in our lives, the identity of Jesus as Lord. When anything gets in the way, when anything blocks out Christ as being Lord and ruler, king of all, 
when he gets covered up, the light of his glory and grace not being a revealed reality in our lives, our mind is not getting him right because he's always only Lord. If there's an eclipsing happening about our Lord, then he's not our master. He's not our ruler. He's not in charge. He's not absolutely true. He's not sovereign leader. He's not the authority. He won't be an authority among many. He has to be the authority, the Lord. God knows for his people and those outside of, of the faith, he knows this is the problem. And he inspires Paul, for example, to write about this repeatedly. Philippians 3.19, talking about enemies of the cross, those who are getting Jesus wrong. He says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. They get Jesus wrong and they worship themselves. Colossians 3, 2 and 3, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. See, what we want is for our lives to totally be eclipsed and hidden by the glory of Christ. The glory of the cross being hidden with Christ and God. He has to totally eclipse us, totally eclipse our lives. A, a struggle for me, maybe you can relate, is, is people. I, 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 caring so much about what people think. Letting people influence me. In a way, now, again, yes, we are supposed to be others focused. We want to take the gospel to people. We want to serve people for the glory of God. But when I care so much, so much about what people think, then that influence is harming that influence is contrary to Jesus being Lord. What if that influence leads me to care so much about what people think that then I'll, I'll listen to even in quote unquote churches or listen about people who may claim Jesus and I start listening or reading what they're saying about Jesus and it's contrary to his word, but I wouldn't know it because I'm not in the word, I'm listening to them and I start getting sideways about who Jesus is. I think this is an epidemic in our culture. I can't say the Christian culture because I don't believe it's true. But for those that are being influenced to think wrongly about Jesus is it's caring too much about what people think and what people think is contrary to God's word in some instances. Only Jesus. Only he's worthy of our thoughts, our following our lives. And why think about this response? His rebuke of Peter. Peter's saying, I don't want you to suffer and die. If, if someone said that to me, I'd be like, thank you. <laughs> but, but Jesus knew he's not only willing to suffer and die excruciatingly to make a guilty sinner like me innocent in the eyes of God the Father, but in, his, in, in this incarnate state in Jesus' life, he has his will. He's modeling and perfectly exemplifying for us. He's having his will completely eclipsed by the Father's will. In Gethsemane, just a, a few moments after this uh, event here, he will say, God, not my will, but yours be done. He models perfectly for us submission to the only one that's worthy of complete surrender. This is a remarkable example. This is a, a, a loving rebuke. Of Peter. He knows not what Peter wants to hear, but what Peter needs to hear. Jesus is worthy and he's Lord. 
late theologian J.I. Packer, he puts it well about the, the lordship of Christ, living for Jesus, having our will totally eclipsed by the Father's will, being fueled and informed by what God's word says, regardless if, like John Huss's example, regardless if his leaders and employers are teaching contrary, Packer says, our high and privileged calling is to do the will of God and the power of God for the glory of God. It's a high and privileged calling to call Christ Lord and say, your will be done in your power for your glory. Our joy and our hope to live following Jesus. So if you're here and you've not experienced that, that high and privileged calling. And Jesus is, you, you sit here today and, and you, Jesus is not my Lord. Well, today is the day. He suffered, he bled, he died, he rose again. And he promises to return to claim all those who he calls. Peter thought that Jesus, in this instance, thought that the Messiah had come to do what he wanted, to do his bidding. It's totally the opposite. Either Jesus is Lord or he's nothing. Either Jesus is Lord or he's nothing. There's no getting close. If he's not Lord, you're not even close. We think about major world religions. We think about Mormons. We think about Hindus. We think about Buddhists, Muslim, Jehovah's Witness, what have you. They all get Jesus wrong. He's not Lord. And it's, it's, they believe contrary things to what his word reveals about him. So how can we show and share this loving truth? By living with Christ, totally eclipsing our lives. He's the influence. He's our priorities and our decision-making shaped by him. How do we make this wonderful reality known? Because he ultimately, he won't take a backseat. He won't be eclipsed. Thank you, God for that truth. Pray with me.